0: We're in chapter 22 of Luke today. We're supposed to get through verses 1 through 46. That was the original plan, but then uh, it was just—it way too much. And so sliced it in half. We're going to go from verse 1 to verse 23, and then we're just going to add on the remaining 23 verses to the next time that we, uh, that we talk. Um, there's a lot of important and yet uncommon theological content in today's portion of scripture, stuff that we don't get to talk about a whole lot. And so uh, I hope that, that it doesn't catch anyone by surprise or overwhelm you. I'm going to try to keep it, uh, you know, I'm going try to try to keep it like understandable, um, but there's a lot of information, just so you know. So if you're taking notes, good luck. <laughs> there's a lot to write down. Um, if you remember, Jesus at this point in Luke is in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And it is now, it's it's the last week of his life. He's going to be crucified on Friday. And where we're at in the passage, it is Thursday. It is the day before he dies. Uh, He'll be arrested later this night. And then on the next day, he will be nailed to a cross. Conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders has reached its fever pitch. Uh, They are more bloodthirsty than ever. And they'll conspire to kill him in the next two verses that we're going to look at. uh, And they're going to succeed on that. Right? They're going to they're gonna arrest him. They're going to uh, put him on trial. They're going to they're gonna, uh, murder him on a cross. And Jesus knows all of this. He has been predicting it and uh, letting the disciples know that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to the Jews. Gentiles will end up killing him. He'd be raised back to life. He's been saying all this stuff to the disciples. And uh, if you've been tracking with us, they haven't really been getting it. Right? They think he's being figurative or, or he's just being cryptic. when he says stuff like that, because it doesn't make sense to them why the hero of the story, the savior, the Messiah, the guy who's going to bring the kingdom would get killed because that sounds like defeat. So they don't quite get it. uh, And Jesus is, you know, even though he's like told it to them, he just kind of lets them not get it. And he lets them sit in that for a little bit. It is now the day before he is uh, uh, before he's killed, and so how does he spend his last day in his freedom, you know, before he uh, before he's arrested and, uh, and nailed to a cross? How does he do that? Well, what he does is he prepares himself, and he prepares his apostles to be ready for what to do after he's gone. He's going to prepare, get, make everything ready for when he's on the cross, and then when he's gone. So, Here's the structure we're going to go at today. We're going to take it in four movements. Uh, the first is that the enemies prepare to trap Jesus. That'll be verses 1 through 6. It'll just kind of be this little moment where the, uh, the religious leaders will talk, and, uh, and then they're going to make their plot, okay? And then we're going to shelve them, put them on the side. So the enemies prepare to trap Jesus, and then Jesus prepares to celebrate Passover in verses 7 through 13. Uh, and that's really just him getting ready for the holiday, a Jewish holiday, and then third, we'll talk about how Jesus prepares communion to replace Passover. Have you ever noticed uh, we we as a church and churches out there we just don't we don't celebrate Passover? We celebrate communion, um, and uh, and I'll explain why. He he prepares communion to replace Passover, and then finally, um, oh, that, that's verses fourteen to twenty, and then finally in the very last three verses, uh, Jesus is prepared to be betrayed. And that'll kind of function as a very short kind of conclusion. Jesus is prepared to be betrayed. That's verses 21 to 23, okay? So let's start with how the enemies prepare to trap Jesus in chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. It starts here in verse 1. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. That's kind of nice that Luke is aware that his his audience is Gentile. It's non-Jewish. So he goes, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. It's also called Passover, and he's explaining that to his non-Jewish audience. Verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Right? They're trying to figure out how to put Jesus to death, And the reason why they have to figure this out, they can't just walk up and kill him because they're afraid of the people. The people love Jesus right now. He's renowned as a healer, as a teacher, miracle worker. He feeds thousands of people with bread and fish, calms storms. He's uh, cured sickness, cast out demons, made the blind see, made the deaf hear, the mute speak, the lame walk. He's even uh, rumored to have brought people that were dead back to life. And so they go, this is the king. Everyone's, uh, everyone's curious about Jesus. Everybody is a fan of Jesus right now. And so the chief priests and the scribes are afraid to cause a riot if they, if, if they openly oppose Jesus. Now, I want to understand the significance up front on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover. Um, because they're really two different holidays, but they're, kind of, they're adjacent. They're stuck next to each other. And because it's one after the other, they're, all, they're used interchangeably. You can say Passover, or you can say the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or uh, you can kind of switch them out. Because it starts with Passover, and then it's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and there is no break in between. Uh, the Passover, if you're Jewish... ...is the first and most important of all the annual religious celebrations for Israel. It is the center of the religious holidays. It was a pilgrimage festival... Uh, That means that uh, there were three festivals or feasts. There were three of these religious holidays every year that the the Jewish men who were healthy enough and capable would have to journey to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. Uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread was one of them. The Feast of Weeks, which we also call Pentecost, was another. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was the third one. So there were these three different uh, festivals or, or feasts that, uh, that would take place. They're talked about in Numbers 28 and 29. If you're a Jewish man, you're physically able, and you're ceremonially clean, you have to go to Jerusalem where the temple is, and that's where you celebrate. And that's talked about in Exodus 23, verse 17, and Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. Passover celebrated uh, this historical moment where God delivered the Jews out of slavery to Egypt. It was a, uh, this monumental moment because they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God raises up this guy Moses to come in and, uh, and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then God empowers Moses to unleash these, these incredible plagues, these awful plagues upon, uh, upon Egypt. Ten plagues, the first nine, well really all ten, but uh, the first nine really targeted different Egyptian gods. Like the first plague is just the Nile. The Nile River turns to blood. Each one targets the Egyptian gods to say that, like, it's your God versus my God. That's, that's really what it came down to. And uh, uh, these plagues are, are, are used as judgments. That's how God delivered Israel. He judged Egypt and, uh, at, you know, with these plagues, and Egypt was, was sitting there going, like, our gods cannot do anything against the might of Israel's God, Yahweh God. His name is Yahweh. So uh, theologically... This was a big deal for the Jewish people because they said, This is when God delivered us and established us really as a nation. And through the, the Passover, he also, uh, he also forgave our sins. See, because we weren't a worthy people, we didn't deserve anything, but He just provided a way to be acceptable you know, to, uh, to Him in heaven to be acceptable by forgiving our sins. And he would do that through this, uh, this lamb that was slain. It was, a, it was a very intricate thing. They would take lambs. Everyone had to find a pure spotless lamb, a year old. It had to be male. Uh, and then you would slaughter it at a very, very specific time, basically 3 p.m. Uh, on, on a certain day in the month of Nisan. And uh, they'd slaughter it. They'd take the blood, and they'd put it on their doorframe, on the sides of the doorframe and on the, the top of their doorframe. Okay, that's what they, what they would do, and then they would, uh, they would take all that, and, uh, and that would be the sign that when, when God was judging Egypt, that 10th plague was going to be lethal for a lot of people, including the Jews, uh, the people of Israel, and if God saw the blood on their doorframe, that was an act of faith, right? They said, we, okay, this is a weird ritual thing, and it doesn't make any sense to do this, but we're going to slaughter a pure spotless lamb, one year old, without defect, we're going to put the blood on the doorframe. And then when, uh, when God was passing through Egypt, he was slaying the firstborn of every household. But if he saw the blood, he would pass over that house, and everyone in it would be safe. There were a lot of rules uh, to that whole Passover thing, but this is, a, this is a big event that they celebrate year after year. God instituted that, and, uh, and he, he commanded that it be celebrated on a yearly basis. Now, this should be when Israel's religious leaders are the most spiritually aware, the most humble, the most repentant, the most worshipful, when they think about the goodness of God and forgiveness of sins, right? This is when they should be thinking that, and yet they're not. They're seeking how to put Jesus to death. He's done no crime, he's committed no evil, and yet he threatens their power He shames them for their hypocrisy, rightly, and they hate him for it. And so they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. That's one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Okay, Judas Iscariot, which means man from Kerioth. Okay, so Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Who was, one of, uh, uh, who was of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Right. So this, this agreement is struck. More than Israel's religious leaders... Jesus' 12 apostles should be even more spiritually repentant and humble and worshipful, but not Judas Iscariot. Judas is one of the 12. And like I said, Iscariot means man of Kerioth, right? Which Kerioth uh, is a town in southern Israel, in Judea. That's southern. Israel is, the north is Galilee. Then you got this like middle region, Samaria, which is different people. And then you got this southern region, Judea. So Galilee up north, Judea down south, okay? Uh, Judas Iscariot means Judas from Kerioth. That's a town in Judea. He's the only one of the 12, and uh, if you include Jesus, he's the only one out of all 13 of them, Jesus and the 12 apostles. Out of all 13 of them, he's the only one from Judea. He's the only one from the south. The rest were all Galilean. They were all northern. So, Judas is the only one that actually grew up near Jerusalem. He was raised under the tutelage of, of Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests and scribes near his hometown. The religious leaders had the greatest influence in the south. And then, you know, as you go farther away from the capital, you can imagine that the influence uh, weakens out a little bit. So, for Judas now to plot against Jesus by working with the, uh, the leaders of Jerusalem... Those would be the leaders that he grew up under, grew up near, and he's most likely to to do it out of the 12 if you just kind of go on paper with, like, who who lived and uh, grew up closest to these guys. He did. He speaks to the chief priests and the officers, which are the officers of the temple guard, uh, and they're later going to accompany him later this night. They're going to accompany him in John 18, verse 3, and they're uh, going to go arrest Jesus. So Judas... It's just like the religious leaders. He's also afraid of the crowds. He wants to avoid you know, causing a riot, uh, getting in trouble by them and stuff. He's, he's a coward like they are, right? He fears public opinion, and he's, uh, he's not going to do what, uh, what's right despite the, uh, you know, the, the public outlook. Now, we have to deal with the mysterious idea that Satan entered into Judas. I don't know if you noticed that right there in verse 3, but Satan entered into Judas, um, as verse 3 says. And John chapter 13, verse 2, and John chapter 13, verse 27 kind of elaborate on this. Um, It's just that, like, Satan was certainly influencing uh, Judas in some way, but I don't know if that would be called demon possession. Uh, You know, I don't... I don't know if, uh, if the, the prince of all the demons, the leader of all the demons, Satan, uh, entered into Judas in, in a demon possession kind of way. Uh, it, I think it just means that Satan and Judas were on the same page. They wanted the same thing. Satan and, and Judas shook hands spiritually, you know, and Judas didn't even know that was happening because you can't see demons and stuff. Uh, the reason why I say that is because Judas is not a victim here. Okay, he's not just like some vessel that Satan entered into, and oh no, he mind controlled me. He's not a victim. He is very much cooperating with the uh, with the devil's agenda. Okay, uh, and this this just happens because even though Judas is one of the twelve, um, he wasn't he wasn't quite on board with this whole Jesus thing. The more he was, he's been walking around with Jesus for years. Uh, learn, you know, for two years, um, just like the other twelve, uh, the other eleven. And uh, they've all been learning under Jesus. They're all watching the miracles. They're hearing the teachings. They're, you know, they're seeing the, the mighty deeds being done. And somewhere in there, he's, he's not content. He's like, I know this guy is a savior. I, I think he is anyway. And then the more he's walking with Jesus, being homeless, you know, and they're poor, and they're, just, they're not in a castle, and they're not surrounded by, you know, by all this, this glory and power. He's like, "This doesn't feel like what I was promised. This doesn't seem like what I was expecting." So he defects and he he's like, "I'm done with this movement. like this can't be it." And he turns Jesus in. Judas and the religious leaders think that they're in control. they think they're making this plan and they you know they got this uh, this way to trap Jesus by surprise. Um, and yet Jesus will show in in the last two verses of our passage today. Uh, Jesus is fully aware of what they're doing, right? He'll say it in verses 22 and 23. He, we know he's already predicted three times at least that all of this will happen. So Judas and the religious leaders are making their sinful plan. They think that they've, they've got him. They've cornered him. They've got, they've got this, you know, this incredible strategy to surprise him. And yet this is the plan of God to use even the sinful actions of, of sinful people to accomplish his righteous ends. And so the enemies have prepared their trap for for Jesus. Now, let's move to Jesus prepares to celebrate Passover. Verses 7 to 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Okay, so it's now the day when the Passover lamb has to be sacrificed. Keep that in mind. It's it's Passover lamb sacrifice day. Okay, verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying... Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, uh, where will you have us prepare it? So they didn't know, right? Jesus didn't tell them where to go or anything. None of the disciples knew where they're going to have Passover. Verse, Verse 10. Jesus said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room, a large kataluma furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, so I want you to pay attention to two things. The first is the timing, and the second is the foreknowledge, okay? Let's talk about the timing first. It's the day of unleavened bread, this is the day to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And then after the sun goes down, which marks, uh, which marks like a, for some Jews, it'll be like the next day. Anyway, after the sun goes down, uh, they eat the meal, okay? They slay the lamb right around sunset, and then after the sun goes down, they eat the, uh, they eat the meat of it, okay? So uh, I want you to understand how the meal went for the Jews because Jesus is going to transform this whole thing, this Passover meal thing into communion in the next paragraph, right? So after you killed the lamb, you used its blood on the doorframe, like I said, and then you would eat the the flesh of the lamb. You'd eat that with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread and stuff. Unleavened bread was used because uh, that's the kind of bread you baked quickly, like you were in a hurry, right? Uh, there's no time to let it rise, no time to let it get fluffy and, uh, and, and delightful like that, right? Uh, because when, when God was like, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt, right? On that last night of that 10th plague before the, uh, he was going in to slay the firstborn, he's like, look, you make this thing, you, you, you bake this bread, but you be ready to go. You have to get ready to go. So you make your bread quickly, unleavened bread, bread that bakes very, very fast. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to leave Egypt in a hurry, No time to dilly-dally, we're not staying here, this is not home. Leaven in the Bible, leaven like yeast, uh, leaven in the Bible has connotations of a permeating influence, right? It slowly creeps in, it affects everything. So usually in the Bible, not always, but usually, leaven is used as a metaphor for sin or for evil. Uh, It starts small, it creeps in, and then it makes everything puff up, it infects it all. Unleavened bread then means that Israel was leaving behind uh, all the permeating evil influence of Egypt. We're not going to have any of it. We're not going to deal with it. We're, we're out of here. The, the bread, of course, is bland. Uh, and so they would eat it with different kinds of dip. One of the dips that they would use is karoseth, which is pomegranate, dates, figs, nuts. That'll kind of come into play later. Uh, then there were, uh, there were different cups of wine that would be, uh, would be drunk, would be draught uh, during the meal, right? In each cup of wine was symbolic. So sometimes they would have one cup and they would just refill it, you know, and, uh, they would have a cup and then three more times later they would refill it uh, for a total of four cups. But they would, be, they would be drunk at different times during the meal, which was very ceremonialized. And we will get to that. And I'm going to show you the whole ceremony, the, the process of it all uh, in, in the next section. But just know that there are four cups of wine, And then there were other traditions that were used to remind the Jews of the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, of which God saved them. For instance, uh, they would have cinnamon sticks, uh, which were used to remind them of the straw and the mud that they would use to make bricks when they were slaves. Uh, They would have a bowl of salt water, which was put on the table to remind them of the tears that were shed. Uh, and that salt water, they would take like certain, certain vegetables and things, they would dip it into salt water and eat that during this meal. Uh, you ate with your loins girded, which is like saying uh, your shoes tied and your shirt tucked in. You, know, you, uh, you ate with, uh, with your shoes on and your clothes ready to travel quickly, like you're running almost. Uh, you would eat with your staff in your hand, again to symbolize that you're like on the move, you're on the go. Um, and uh, and then the meal would be shared between 10 to 20 people. And the reason why it would be shared between 10 to 20 people is because you have to eat the entire lamb. You have to take in all of it. You can't just have part of it or just the parts that you like. You must take in all of it, eat all of its flesh. And so you wouldn't just be like with your best friend, like, hey, buddy, let's do the, the lamb thing, right? And Because the, then when you, you get through it, you can't finish this lamb, then you've really violated this whole thing. So you get 10 to 20 people, and then you go, okay, well, you know, let's, let's finish the entire lamb. All of it has to be done. They have to roast the meat a certain way, and then, they, uh, and then they eat the whole thing. So when Jesus sends Peter and John to go prepare for the Passover, they have to go get a lamb, or they have to go reserve the room. And they have to go find a lamb, and they have to have a priest slay it somewhere a little bit before sunset, probably 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. It's, it was like that two-hour window. So they probably try to get it at 3, because after that, they have to go find some bitter herbs. Uh, they have to bring the meat back to the room. They have to get like the, the cinnamon and you know, prepare that dip, the, the karoseth. Uh, they have to get the salt, water, everything ready on the table. The room was furnished upstairs. That upper room, the Cataluma, that's furnished upstairs uh, with furniture, or you know, like mats for you to lie down on, recline uh, at the table because they didn't sit on chairs. So that, in that sense, it's furnished. But in terms of preparing for the actual meal, they have to set it all up. They have to set the table. So that's going to take some time. Uh, and then they have to roast the meat and get the meal ready. Have the bread baked, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's going to take a, a, a pretty good amount of time. No one else, from the from the disciples, from the apostles, no one else knows where they're going to celebrate the Passover. Right? Because Jesus says, "Peter, John, you guys go. These are these are like the you know among the, the core leadership. Peter, John, you go." And they're like, "Where are we going?" So nobody knew, and and then he tells them and he gives them these you know these instructions and everything. Um, Nobody knew. And the reason why that's important is because among those people who didn't know, Judas Iscariot didn't know. Got me? Right? He made this plan. He's going to betray Jesus. He's like, I'll I'll, I'll take you to where he is, right, with the the temple guards. But they're going to go celebrate Passover. He doesn't know where that's going to be. Only Peter and John know. So they go, they set the place up, and then Jesus is kind of walking around with his disciples. He's like, all right, let's go. And then he's going to go and take the rest of the disciples there. But Judas doesn't have time to be like, oh, hold on, i got to go betray you. He can't do that, right? He's just walking around with the disciples trying to blend in, and now he's sitting at the Last Supper. What am I doing here, <laughs> you know? So uh, that's, that's kind of what's going on. Only Peter and John know, and they've kind of set this whole thing up. All right. Um, let's reconcile a, a certain timing issue, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that jo- uh, that Jesus had Passover with his disciples, which he's doing, right? He's like, we got to eat the Passover meal, right? On Thursday, right? Okay. He eats Passover on Thursday, Thursday evening, but he gets crucified on what day? Friday, right? He gets crucified on Friday. That's We call it Good Friday. Uh, and what's weird is that Uh, Here's Jesus. He's going to be eating the meal after sundown on Thursday evening, um, and then he'll be arrested later in the night, and then uh, the next day he'll be crucified. But in John chapter 18, verse 28, and John chapter 19, verse 14, they both indicate that the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, all of them, uh, they're, w- when they're crucifying Jesus, you know, they're putting him on tra- trial and, and they're going to crucify him. And they're like, we're not actually going to go in there and, and do this stuff. We're going to just let Rome handle it so that we can eat the Passover. But see, that's Friday. That's happening on Friday. On Friday, the leaders are like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're not going to be involved in, in the actual crucifixion thing. We're just going to celebrate Passover. Why are they celebrating on Friday if Jesus is celebrating on Thursday? Get what I'm saying? I'm glad you asked, right? Uh, Jesus and the disciples are celebrating on Thursday, and, uh, and the Jewish religious leaders are celebrating on Friday. It's a weird thing, and it comes down to how the Jews reckoned when a day began, okay? Um, in our society, a day begins at midnight, which is like the worst way to do it, because without a watch, you have no idea, right? The the Jews did it differently. If you were a Galilean, if you were northern, then you would say, when the sun rises, that's a new day. That's nice, right? Sun's up, it's a new day. And then sun goes down, it's nighttime, and then the next time the sun comes up, it's a new day. Great. That's how they did it, because that makes sense. Okay. If you were Judean, if you were a, uh, from Judea, if you were a Southern Jew, you would do it at sunset. When the sun sets, it's a new day. And okay, well, at least there's some kind of objective, visible marker that everyone can look at and agree on. But the reason why they did that was because Genesis 1, the very, very beginning of the Bible, God creates light. God creates all the things, right? And it says, there was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning, the second day. So evening would begin a day. When the sun goes down, that begins the day. There's evening, and then there's morning, or daylight. That's a day. So the the Judean Jews were even more like, this is what it says in Genesis, so that's how they did it. Okay. Because they reckoned it differently like that, that caused, you can imagine, that caused confusion between the Jews on timing often, right? Like, think about daylight savings for us. We're, like, off by one hour, and we're like, I'll meet you at 2. Okay, but 2, but, like, you mean, like, 2, like, before or after we've set the clock, you know? What are we going to, what time does church start on daylight savings? Are we really going to start it, like, at 11 when we're going to lose an hour of sleep? Why don't we just start it at 12, because that's like the old 11, you know, like it just gets weird like that. Like daylight savings kind of throws us in a loop. If we can't do one hour smoothly, they can't do like 12 hours smoothly, right? So it causes confusion all the time for them, um, and it, but it did have some certain practical benefits. For instance, uh, northern and southern Jews kind of hated each other, Okay. Uh, not, not like super hate. Like they were still like, you know, they, we hate you, we hate you. But then when other nations come in, they're like, hey, these are our brothers. Get out, right? So they still were like, we're... Anyway, okay. Uh, they didn't like each other. They didn't get along because they disagreed on a lot of religious traditions. So you're supposed to sacrifice a lamb at 3 to 5 p.m., right? On Thursday, the Galileans are sacrificing. On Friday, the Judeans are sacrificing. So they don't run into each other. And they're like, "We kind of like this system. It works out for us." So for them, they think that that's, uh, that's like a good workaround. Um, it also helped reduce some, some regional and religious conflicts. You know they, just, they never ran into each other. And so now, instead of only having two hours for the priest to slay all these lambs for all the millions of people in Jerusalem at that time for this pilgrimage festival, they now had two days. With, you know, two hours on this day and two hours on this day. Now I had four hours. It doubled their time. It helped. Okay? So Jesus and the disciples, and uh, oddly, most of the Pharisees, followed Galilean time. And they celebrated Passover on Thursday. Um, And then uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, which were mostly priests and Sadducees, they would celebrate Passover on Friday. That's why John says that the religious leaders were going to celebrate Passover while Jesus was being crucified. And if you get this, Jesus is going to celebrate Passover on Thursday, which means he can, he can actually fulfill the righteous law you know, to, to celebrate Passover like God commands. And when Friday comes, he can die, and if you didn't know this, he can die at the same time that the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover lamb. So he gets to celebrate Passover, transform it, which we'll talk about, and then he gets to be the Passover, the true salvation, the real Passover lamb. Okay, the reason uh, why I want to you know, make sure that timing thing makes sense of itself is just so that you don't end up thinking there's like some kind of weird contradiction in the Bible, stuff like that. Um, but more than that, I keep reinforcing again and again that Jesus is in absolute control of this whole situation. None of it is taking him by surprise. None of it's surprising him. He's not overwhelmed. He's not thwarted. He's not foiled. He could celebrate Passover to fulfill all righteousness, and then he could go be Passover uh, to, to accomplish salvation. God saved Israel out of their slavery to Egypt. Egypt. This was a display to show that Jesus saves us out of bondage to sin. Bondage not just to sin, bondage to death. Bondage not just to death, but bondage to Satan, to the evil one. Jesus didn't just celebrate Passover. He, he is our Passover lamb, and his blood, uh, his is the blood that satisfies God's wrath, right? It's, it's not just the, it's not really about a lamb being slain and then blood on a doorframe. That was a symbol. That was a, a preview, a foreshadow. And it was going to be Jesus, Jesus himself, right? It's, uh, that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, if we've got it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, do we have it? We don't have it. Okay. If you got your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. I want you to see this. I'm like, don't just passively you know, uh, let it hit you. Uh, look at it with your own eyes. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. In that verse, it says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. For Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You must know that the whole thing about Passover, that whole Jewish holiday, that that centerpiece of the Jewish religion, pointed straight to the Messiah. That's Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. Everything else was an imitation, a tribute, an homage. But he is the Passover lamb, and he's been sacrificed. He's the perfect male lamb uh, slain between 3 to 5 p.m., the blood uh, that went on the doorframe of, of the, uh, the lintels of the house, the, the, the right, the left, and the top, that's where the nails were. That's where the thorny crown was. Right? All of it was just this big image that keeps pointing back to Jesus again and again. He'll die on Friday at 3 p.m., a little after 3 p.m., which is what it says in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. That's when the Passover lambs are being slain. He's buried before sunset. He's in the grave On that day, before the sun sets, so the next day hasn't begun yet, that means he's legitimately in the grave on three consecutive days. He's in the grave on Friday, then in the grave on Saturday all day, and then on Sunday, he's in the grave, and and then he rises back from the dead. So the timing is unmistakably divine. The timing is the day of God's sovereign planning, which leads us really to that idea of foreknowledge, right? This was God's sovereign plan. God knew and Jesus tells Peter and John to make these preparations. He tells them exactly what they'll see, exactly how it'll happen. He knows that there'll be a servant carrying a jug of water uh, and that the servant's master will have this upper room, this kataluma furnished for them, ready for them. Um, it, there might have been a pre-arrangement that Jesus made with this house owner. It's not like, you know, that he was mind controlling anyone. He might have made a, a, a pre-arrangement, but still to to foresee with the remarkable accuracy that there's this guy carrying a jug of water you're going to see him he's like a you know just a dude walking around that's just weird cuz only women carried j- uh, jars of water men carried skins leather skins so it's just a, a, like an odd peculiar thing and that's why he he says it to the disciples cuz it's something that sticks out something that you wouldn't see every day he's in complete control everything is as he said everything's moving according to plan nothing surprises him And the gospel writers frequently remind us that Jesus is knowingly and intentionally walking toward his destiny on the cross. And just as a side note, you keep hearing hearing me say that upper room is kataluma. That's a guest room, upper room, a guest room upstairs. uh, Because I hate in Luke chapter 2 verse 7 when people translate it as an inn like a motel, you know, like the, the, it's the Christmas story. Joseph and, and Mary, they came, they gave birth and put him in a manger and they, they think a manger's a barn because there was no room in the inn, like a motel. A manger's a feeding trough and the guest room is the upstairs room. There was no room upstairs, so they put him in a little box downstairs. They were staying with Joseph's family. Nobody cares, okay, that's fine. All right, let's, let's talk about how Jesus prepares communion to replace Passover, verses 14 to 23. Keep in mind, he's about to celebrate Passover. He's going to transform it uh, from Passover to communion. And th- the reason for that is because Jesus is the Passover lamb, like I've said, right? Uh, so we, uh, up until now, the Jews are remembering the exodus, right? The, the rescue from, from Egypt, uh, from slavery. Uh, they're remembering the exodus. But now Jesus is like, okay, I want you to stop thinking about the exodus I want you to think about remembering the Christ. That's what he's going to do, remembering Jesus, remembering his death on the cross. The Passover meal is his last supper before he's arrested and then crucified. So this is the moment that we call the last supper, which Leonardo da Vinci oddly paints with everybody sitting on one side of a table when they should be reclining at a table that is shaped like a horseshoe, like a U. Uh, They should be lying down on the ground, like propped up on one elbow, and then eating. But this is the Last Supper, um, and so this is the Passover meal, uh, and he's going to institute this bread and wine thing, because these are elements that are already there at the Passover meal. They already have unleavened bread, and they already have these four cups of wine. They have all these elements there, and he's going to take that. He's going to transform their meaning. He's going he's to reassign them to now not be about the Exodus, but to be about the Christ. So we call it communion. It doesn't matter, you know, if you if you call it communion or if you if you call it something else, uh, you can call it the Lord's supper. That's what it's called in First Corinthians ten and eleven, where you get like maybe the best and most replete teaching on the issue. Some people call it the Lord's table. Others call it Eucharist, which just means giving thanks. The various names don't matter, you know. Jesus is going to celebrate uh, Passover and redirect its meaning to be communion, Eucharist, Lord's supper, Lord's table, whatever you want to call it, bread and wine. Um, It went from a memorial of God saving Israel from slavery to a memorial of Jesus saving us on the cross. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Like, I really wanted to have this Passover with you uh, before I suffer. Verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. So this this cup, right? He gives thanks, Eucharisto, Eucharist, and he, he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. So they take the cup, they pour wine for everybody. Verse 18, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he said it twice now. I'm not going to eat this thing until the kingdom. I'm not going to drink this thing until the kingdom. So emphatically now, he says, I'm not going to do this until the kingdom comes. So that's not some weird, symbolic, decorative language. He's saying, when I return, I'm going to establish a kingdom, like an actual kingdom. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to sit on a throne. It's not symbolical. It's a kingdom. And you'll know it because I'm going to be sitting at a table, and I'm going to be drinking this wine, and I'm going to be eating this bread in the Passover celebration. So that's something that is yet future. This part makes no sense without any background. If you don't understand like kind of what's happening in this day and age. Okay, so Jesus wanted to celebrate Passover with the apostles before he suffers. That's what he says in verse 15. Again, he knows he's going to suffer. He's fully aware of it. And he says he's not going to eat this thing until it's fulfilled in the kingdom in verse 16, uh, which is when Jesus returns. Fine. But something weird happens. Jesus interrupts the normal celebration of Passover uh through, through the use of this wine and this bread and stuff, he, he, he kind of does this something different. There are these four cups of wine. All of them are doubly diluted to prevent drunkenness, right? So it's not just like, hey, let's have communion, you know? It's, uh, they, they would dilute it so that everybody stayed sober. Uh, the cups are, are diluted, uh, the, and each cup is symbolic of a basic promise. Uh, and this is a tradition that the Jews developed, okay? And they, they still actually celebrate that even now. Uh, it's based on Exodus chapter six, verses six to seven. If we've got that, uh, it says, "Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." Right? He's like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this for you." So they said, "This is, this is a blessing," right? This is a blessing. So the first cup they would call the cup of blessing. And then God says, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, to the Egyptians, right? That's when he throws down the plagues. And they're like, oh, that reminds us of the, uh, of the plagues. That's the judgment of God. So they have the second cup, the cup of judgment, okay? And then he says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so they go, ah, oh, he's going he's to redeem us. He's going he's to hang on to us. So that's the cup of redemption. That's the third cup. And then in verse 7, it says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. I'll take, And they're like, oh, that's when the kingdom happens, right? That's, that's the fulfillment of all the promises. So they would call that fourth cup the cup of fulfillment, or the cup of the covenant, or the cup of the promise, or the cup of the kingdom. They had lots of names for it because that's the one that was yet future, and they're looking forward to it. They're like, I can't wait for that one. That's when all the problems are solved. So you have the cup of blessing or the cup of thanksgiving. Sometimes we would call it that. The cup of blessing, the cup of judgment, the cup of redemption, and then the cup of fulfillment, covenant, promise, or kingdom. Whatever you want to call it. Those are the four cups of wine to be taken during Passover. Now, just to be an overachiever... Let's see the exact order of how they did the Passover, okay? So they'd start with the prayer of Thanksgiving. Somebody starts off and gives a blessing, and then they drink the first cup, the cup of blessing. And, you know, they, they, give, they say at Thanksgiving, they, they say, God has really blessed us. Uh, we're so thankful. Here's the cup of blessing. Cheers. And so, you know. Then they would have a ceremonial washing of their hands, and the ceremonial washing of the hands was to, to demonstrate that, uh, that their hearts need to be clean before the Lord. And so, you know, you get it. Okay. Then they would eat the bitter herbs. And that, uh, that would be like, you know, it would be a dip. Uh, the, the herbs would be mixed into a dip. And, uh, and then the, the bread, uh, that, some of the bread that they would have, they would dip or they would take uh, vegetables and they would dip it into the, this mixture with the bitter herbs, and they would eat it, and they would, uh, it, it would just remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And then they would sing from the Hallel—that's you know the the Psalms. Um, they would sing Psalms 113 and 114, and then there would be the Haggadah, which is uh, that sounds like an ice cream. The haggadah. It means that the father of the family or the head of the household or the head of the table, so in this case where Jesus and his 12 apostles, he's the head of the table, even though they're not blood-related family, right? The head of the table um, will stand up and then he will explain the meaning of Passover, why do we have the salt water? Why do we eat bitter herbs? Why do we, uh, why do we have a lamb and roast it? And you know, What was God doing during this time? They would ask these kinds of questions uh, very formally, almost like a catechism, and then answer it and stuff like that. And so someone would, would stand up and tell the meaning of Passover, especially that 10th plague and how God saved Israel uh, out of Egypt, but, you know, and they were immune to the first nine plagues, but that 10th plague they were prone to judgment of that 10th plague but god provided a way of salvation even for that and so they remembered that and then they pick up the second cup and they go the cup of judgment to remember all the plagues on egypt especially the 10th plague and then they would drink the second cup then they would eat the passover meal the actual passover lamb so if you notice two cups came before the meal and then two cups will come after the meal, right? So they'll have the Passover lamb eaten with unleavened bread and with that Karoseth dip, that pomegranate and apple, whatever, dates, figs. Uh, it, it, it's that dip, right? Uh, and that's going to be important uh, in a different part of the Bible later. Uh, and then they'll, uh, after they eat the Passover lamb, cup number three, they pick it up and they say, This is the cup of redemption. And that's to celebrate that God has redeemed his people, freed them. We're free. Right? He's blessed us, and he poured judgment out on Egypt, and so we are free. We are liberated, redeemed. And so they would drink that. And then finally, they'd sing from the Hallel, Psalm 115 to 118. And then they'd have that fourth cup, the cup of fulfillment or promise or covenant or kingdom, because they look forward to the fulfillment of everything that God promised them. Okay. Luke has given us a very abridged version. He doesn't talk about every little step. He doesn't talk about this is when they wash their hands and this is when they, he just kind of gives us real quickly like this happened, this happened, and he's kind of done with it, right? Because he he wants to get to the point and he doesn't have a Jewish audience so he's not really interested in trying to explain it all. I was interested in explaining it all, but he was not, okay? Luke just goes super fast through it um, without a step-by-step, moment-by-moment playback. So he skips the hand washing, he skips the bitter herbs, he skips a lot of the singing and stuff, the, the Haggadah. He just gets to the second cup, right? Uh, Jesus stands up and, uh, and it seems like he gives a second cup in, uh, in chapter 17, uh, in verse 17, I mean. That's either the second cup or the first cup because it says he gave thanks. and then you know, But they, you kind of give thanks throughout the whole thing. It seems like that's the second cup, but they eat the meal. And then verse 19, and he took the bread and when he gave, had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them all, to his disciples, as the apostles, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, when you and I think of that, what action of him giving his body do we think of? The cross. But has that happened yet? No. And do the disciples actually think he's going to be crucified? No. So he's like, this is my body. And they're like, okay. It's weird. I'll eat it. That was fine. And then he goes, uh, verse 20, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. They're just like, whatever you say, Lord, bottoms up. Here we go, right? Uh, Jesus said it. We don't know what it means, but he, he talks parable-like, so that's good, right? They, I think they're confused, right? He's like, I, I'm going to have my body broken for you. I'm going to have my blood spilled for you. They're like, sure, Jesus, yeah, whatever that means, you know? And they they'd eat the bread. They drink the cup. Fine. So they had the unleavened bread. Jesus redirected that to be about his body. They had the third cup which is the cup of redemption. See, this would come after the meal. So the the cup of redemption. So what's weird, though, is in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, when they talk about this moment, they said that he gave it to his, his apostles, and the apostles drank it. But it doesn't seem like Jesus drank it. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Okay, so maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But here's the thing. That cup... And even the bread, he's like, I will not eat of this until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. And I will not drink of this until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. His body is not yet broken. It's not fulfilled yet. And his blood is not yet shed. It's not fulfilled yet. And he doesn't have a kingdom. It's not fulfilled yet. So I don't think he took the bread, and I don't think he took the wine. Uh, And it's not like a huge dividing point or anything, but just, it's interesting. He goes, I'm not going to have it. The apostles do, but he does not. Because he doesn't need to take the, the bread and the wine to remember that he broke his body and shed his blood for you. He broke his body and shed his blood for you. He did the thing that we're remembering, right? And he says this weird cryptic thing. He goes, this, uh, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the new covenant. That's a huge trigger term for the Jews, For Israel, the the new covenant. A covenant is just a legal promise, right? A legal promise almost always ratified by blood from the Israelites. Um, And that comes out like Exodus 24. There's blood of the covenant. So when you make a a covenant, then you would sacrifice an animal. Something has to die to show how serious you are and how solemn and how serious it is that this promise is made. It's the covenant. uh, The new covenant is the covenant that says people... Will be saved by being transformed in their hearts, and God will forgive their sins. That's the new covenant. Salvation will be by transformation of the heart, that's repentance and faith, and God will forgive their sins. The new covenant is mentioned in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. um, And what's confusing about it is we call it the new covenant, but don't you go, wait a minute. Isn't that how people were always saved? Transformation of the heart, repentance, faith. And then God forgives their sins? Isn't that? Because they weren't really saved by the law before. They do the law as an act of faith. But the law just shows you where you fall short. It, It doesn't give you points for heaven. So how is this a new covenant at all? How is this in any way new? This is the same way that god's been saving people in the old testament and the new testament it's the same thing right they're the same picture it's just this is before the cross this is after the cross but everybody was waiting for forgiveness everyone uh, was waiting for for god to you know make it right technically salvation has always been like this transformation of the heart you repent of your sins and you trust in the lord it's always been by God then seeing that and then responding by forgiving your sins, right? That's the Old Testament. That's the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you follow the law, the Mosaic law. But again, that's just an act of faith. It doesn't get you to heaven. It was always by repentance and trust. Uh, so God forgave people for their, of their sins before the cross. God forgave people for their sins after the cross. But you must understand God forgave people of their sins because of the cross. Okay? This is the point. The New Covenant has been in effect from ever since God's been saving people. It's always been forgiving them of their sins. The New Covenant has always been in effect like that where when people have a transformed heart, repent of their sinfulness, God will forgive them even though they don't deserve it. But it must be ratified by blood. When did that take place? It's going to happen right now. That's the crucifixion. Even though that promise went into effect ever since God's been saving people, where's the, where, where's the moment where God uh, seals the deal with blood? It's with the blood of the lamb. Not the Passover lambs that were slaughtered throughout history by hundreds thousands of thousands of Jews over and over again. By the Passover lamb, the lamb of God. The one that God slaughters. The one that he sacrifices So this is the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant has always been the way that people get saved, but it had to be ratified, and it's ratified here and now on the cross. That's what's happening. They are now about to witness the moment where God's uh, promise of salvation is made sure, made manifest. Jesus will die to satisfy the Mosaic covenant, and he'll die to uh, take our condemnation and his shed blood will allow God to forgive our sins. Because, yeah, you're guilty of death, but he died for you, so you owe nothing now, right? He sees the blood on the hands and on on the head, on the left and right and on the top, on Jesus. And that's like the doorway, and he passes over you. The wrath of God is satisfied. So Jesus is now the centerpiece of the most central Jewish religious celebration. He has just commandeered Passover. The central story, the central holiday, the central concepts, the central elements of bread and wine and lamb. He takes all that and he goes, that's all about me. The bread is my body, the wine is my blood, and that's the the covenant I've made to save people, and the lamb, I am the lamb. The disciples understood none of this. And like a bunch of Christians today don't even understand all of this. I don't think it's talked about enough. That's why when Jesus dies on the cross, they're shocked. The apostles, they didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't understand it. You know, they, they'll get it after he's raised, and he has to explain it to them. And the Holy Spirit has to illuminate them. But Jesus has transformed Passover for his disciples uh, Now the bread and the wine, they're not to remember slavery in Egypt or anything. It's to remember the work of Jesus on the cross. That's what that's for. It's not to remember the exodus. It's to remember the Christ. We do not need to slay a lamb. The lamb has already been slain once and for all. So we get to celebrate communion. Jesus doesn't have to celebrate communion. He is communion. Um, Communion is just to remember him and... Uh, and, and then this week in our discipleship groups, we're going to try to run a little simulation of this whole Passover thing. It'll be fun, hopefully. You know, but uh, we get to celebrate communion. And if you notice, the communion is, is to do that in remembrance of him, right? We do it in remembrance of him. It's not some magic spell. The bread doesn't magically, uh, mystically transform to become his flesh, or it doesn't imbue you with some supernatural power or something like that. No, it's just, it's a memorial, It's not about the benefits to you. It's it's about the work of Jesus on the cross. That benefits anyone who who trusts in him, but it is about Jesus, not about you, okay? Jesus doesn't take uh, communion, and he, he won't eat the Passover lamb or drink the wine until the kingdom. So what's interesting is that Christians will celebrate communion only up until the return of jesus just so you know we'll celebrate communion only up until the return of jesus when jesus returns he's going to celebrate a new kind of passover that's going to combine everything i guess uh, i'll prove it to you first corinthians 11 verse 26 do we have it first corinthians 11 verse 26 we got it good for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until when until he comes When he returns, right? So you'll do this, you'll have communion to keep remembering his death on the cross until the day he returns, then he consummates salvation, right? So this will remember he died for us, but when he's back in his kingdom, he's like, yeah, but I'm not dead though. I'm alive, right? I'm right here, I'm right here. I'm, I'm right here. And he's gonna be very, very manifest and known. Jesus doesn't drink the cup of redemption. He doesn't drink the cup of fulfillment because these are the works that had not yet happened during that dinner. He'll do the redemption on the cross and he'll bring the kingdom when it's future. And he's like, then I'm going to drink those cups and it's going to be incredible because all will be accomplished. Finally then, that's uh, Jesus preparing communion to replace Passover. Then we get that Jesus is prepared To be betrayed It's very quick. In verses 21 to 23, it says, uh, Jesus is continuing to speak. He says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So he already knows about Judas. He knows. Verse 22, for the son of man goes as it has been determined, right? That's the plan of God. The son of man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed, Woe to that man, verse 23. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So obviously, Jesus knew the plan. He knew Judas would betray him. All the disciples were, were wondering, like, who? Who's that going to be? And if you read Mark, 20, uh, Mark 14 or Matthew 26 or John 13, they're all like, wait, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? I always think that's interesting that they're like, is it me? Could it be me? Because like Jesus has kind of put them each on blast at different times. But then nobody's like, hey, is it Judas? That guy's kind of sketch, right? Nobody's like that. Judas doesn't stick out all weird. It's not like the, the the 11 are all glowing and then he's all like got this dark cloud on him. Like I'm a disciple too, right? He's just number 12 and he he blends in perfectly. They probably think he's more... Like religious and and legit than they are because he's from Judea next to Jerusalem, but they're like, is it I? Is it I? And in in John uh, in John thirteen, uh, the apostle John is like leaning on Jesus, and he kind of whispers, he's like, come on Lord, just tell me, just tell me, and then Jesus tells him right, but he t- he like whispers it back, he's like, is. It's the guy that I'm going to dip the bread in the Seth. Watch this. He takes his bread and dips it in the Seth, and he's like, Judas! (laughs) Right? Uh, By the way, there are two Judases in the 12 disciples. We call uh, call one Thaddeus, but his name is also Judas. So that's why it's Judas Iscariot. They always give him a a second name, and they say, like, he's the traitor, right? So he goes, Judas? I imagine two people turn, but one of them he's looking at. Uh, Judas is scared and he hands it to him, and that's the one with, with, that eats it. And he was like honoring him with the car Seth. And uh, when that happens, the apostle John must be like, traitor, right? But the other guys, they don't even notice, right? They don't, they don't realize what, what happens. And then Jesus says to Judas, uh, or uh, Judas says to, to Jesus, just like everyone else, he's like, Is it I? You know, everyone else is like, is it I? Is it I? And Jesus is like, oh, calm down, calm down. And then he dips the bread, because it's to Judas. And Judas goes, is it I? And he goes, yes. <laughs> and then he goes, whatever you're about to do, do it quickly. That's like scary to me. I don't know. Because if you're Judas, you're like, well, shoot. You know, like, so he gets up and he, he just runs out of there. The other disciples, like, like I said, Jesus was kind of whispering this to him, so the other disciples don't catch on, and they're like, where did he go? Oh, he probably went to go buy something. He probably went to go get more food. So they, they, they are in the dark, except the apostle John. He's like, you know, he's, I think he's fully aware of what's going on, but for some reason he doesn't say anything or, or nobody believes him, whichever. Woe to Judas. It was the plan of God to use a betrayer. It was the foreknowledge, the foreordained plan of God to use a traitor. This guy did exactly what was in the plan. He was always gonna betray, and he betrayed, and so it was the work of God. That is the work of God, the plan of God. But woe to that man, because he is still responsible for his choice. God will use the sinful actions of sinful people in his plan. And yet every sinner is still responsible for his or her choice. You can go, but I'm accomplishing God's plan. Yes, you are. The part that gets judged and gets punished. You are responsible for your choice. The question always bounces around in my head, what made a guy like Judas do this? He was walking with Jesus for years, seeing the miracles hearing the teaching, watching the mighty deeds, even participating on the missions trips. What made him do that? And what's crazy is John chapter 12 says that like uh, he was in charge of the money bag. He was the treasurer of the group. And he would oftentimes, repeatedly, pilfer money from the money box and keep it for himself. He would steal money from Jesus. Who does that, right? But he would steal money from these poor homeless ministry apostles. And he'd keep it for himself. Who knows what he spent it on? But somewhere in there was this discontent. He's walking around with Jesus. And maybe he thinks Jesus is the Messiah. But, you know, he wanted a Savior, but he didn't want suffering. He wanted faith, but he didn't want frustration. He wanted the kingdom, but he was not willing to take up his cross. He looked at Jesus and said, I know all the stuff you're promising, but I want stuff right now. And so he'd make these compromises, small compromises. And I think by making small compromises in your faith where you go, Jesus is not enough. All that promise of eternity, all that promise of heaven, all of that is not enough. I need to have glory now. And so you make compromises. By doing that, you slowly create this rhythm that you have with the evil one. And I I find it no surprise that someone who has conditioned himself to think that Jesus is not enough would then fall prey and in league with Satan himself. If it can happen to one of Jesus' 12 apostles, it certainly can happen to any one of us if we're not careful. I think the difference comes down to this issue of Passover, communion. See, when you pray, when you, when you re- think of Jesus, when you just, your regard for him, you'll either be thinking, what can Jesus do for me? And it'll come out when you pray. You'll pray for health. You'll pray for success. You'll pray for a good, happy, easy life, one that unbelievers would want as well. When you when you regard Jesus as what can Jesus do for me, that's how you end up praying. That's how you end up coming to church and what you're looking for in Jesus, like Judas did. What can Jesus do for me? But the the real manifestation of faith is to ask, or is really to pay attention to what has Jesus done for me? And then to remember his body and to remember his blood, and not go, I need more, but to say, this was way more than I ever deserved. It's a completely different perspective to look at the cross and not go, yeah, yeah, I know that story, but what's next? What else can I get? I like the forgiveness thing. What else can he give me? What what can he do to make me feel good inside, make me feel warm? What can he do? But instead, it's a focusing on the blood and and the body and saying, this is broken for me and shed for me. And we remember and we worship. There are people who think of Jesus and he just reminds them of a list of commands. You shall not, dot, dot, dot. Or you look at Jesus and he's the center of the story, the centerpiece of your soul. He is the fulfillment and the promise. He's the destiny. He's the center of scripture. He is everything. A look at Jesus will either say it's not enough or for those who know who he is, we know he's the true Passover lamb. He's our Passover lamb. Foreordained to be slain before the foundation of the world as a sacrifice to transform our hearts, to forgive sin to make peace with God, and to save our souls forever, and we will remember it until the day He's back, and when He's back, we'll celebrate again with Him. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. As we come to the Father in prayer, I just want to remind you one last thing, just that the entire Bible has been about Jesus. The whole thing. The Old Testament is not a different God than the New Testament. It's not like that. And You'll see in Revelation 13 that before the foundation of the world, there was a lamb who was destined to be slain. 1 Peter 1, Hebrews 10. He was the sacrifice for all time. He is the one that was foreordained. It was always the plan of God. Passover was just a tribute to him, a foreshadow, a preview. The fulcrum of history and the centerpiece of God's saving work is Jesus' death on the cross. Either... You think it's not enough and you want something else something more or it is all you need when you remember it you know it is far more than you deserve and it it secures for you an infinitely better eternal end father we pray that we would have our sights set properly on the cross to know that it was not about freedom from slavery. It was not about liberation from pain, inconvenience, unhappiness, any of the other things that we look at in this world thinking that that's the real problem. It has always pointed to forgiveness of sins and making our relationship right with you. And it's always been the plan to accomplish that by the death of Jesus on a cross. We pray, God, that we would celebrate that, that we would remember it well, often, always, to look upon the broken body and the shed blood and to say, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Bless your church, grow us as the men and women you called us to be, and keep us again and again in your word in awe of the love and grace and mercy of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we delve further into Luke next time, we pray that we would again be receptive to the story we've heard so many times and bring us back to wonder and to awe and worship. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.